Hi there, everybody. Hello. How are we all? Well, I am kind of glowing there. It's kind we of are glowing. Kind, of, kind of bright in the office here. Yeah. How's how's that, Patty? Look a little better. Yes. Do I look better? Yeah. You always <laughs> you always look great. <laughs> no, I that's don't. the thing. I go back and I work on these videos later, yeah. you know, and I'm yeah. trimming them, and there you are every time, just sparkling away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last week I told Patty, you know, we had that mess up last week because we dropped our internet connection but it came back but it takes a while to get it put back together for people to find their way back on and so i was working on it to put it getting in a video to put online and gosh i'm pretty expressive on camera sometimes it was really funny really i yes. mean gets i don't know i'm i'm gonna be committed someday and then on the class that was live <laughs> on tuesday scott was standing next to a, a high table that had a glass of water on it and he missed it about six times before yeah, i jumped up from my seat and moved but the i knew exactly where i was the whole time you see you had no idea <laughs> And I could just see it going flying on the so, keyboard. Yeah. Well, we're glad everybody's here yes, on MLK Day. You know, the church is closed today. Church offices are, as many many things are closed today. But it never made sense to me to cancel the Bible study on the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's King Day. So right. I I just go press ahead. Sure, he'd want us to meet and talk about the Bible. Yes. He's a pastor and a preacher. So, let's see. Here we are. Back to the second Thessalonians today. Say that three times. Yeah, I know. And I couldn't. I'm butchered every time I come. So anyway, we're, we're glad everybody's yes, here. Yes, we are very glad that you're here. And um, as we move forward, we move forward. Appreciated yes. the suggestions we got last week about where we go after this because it's kind of a short letter. So, uh, I, you know, if you have any more suggestions or ideas patty go write patty go write them down sure for us am. i got a couple last week from theodis that yeah. i wrote down and, and susan faulkner and susan susan yes. did sure enough so, sure enough. so. okay anyway, i guess we're ready to go you ready to go yeah all right well let's pray gracious lord we have returned on this monday to continue our journey through first thessalonians second seth oh gosh second thessalonians and we ask um, that you'd pour a lot of grace on us and that you would help me remember what book we're reading and how to say it. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit will move among us today and um, give us lots of energy and enthusiasm for these next couple of weeks are going to be a pretty, pretty, pretty big journey, I think, and just uh, help us to, to approach these scriptures wisely. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 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 Oh, you get a lot of grace because you're working on a day where everybody else at the church is off today. So you, you get But what does that have to do with being able to say Second Thessalonians? Honey, I've been married to you for 25 years. And 25 years ago, you couldn't have said it three times fast. No, no, never could have. You know, one little tidbit people don't know about me is that like in the third grade, I was put in a speech therapy class. Aww. Or I would go to speech ther therapy because, you know, it just, I had a lisp and I had other pro other issues. So, and, and I still have issues. And I'll probably still have a lisp. <laughs> so anyway, but we're glad everybody's here. So we are in Second Thessalonians. And uh, as I was working on the next 
oh, good, good, good many uh, pieces of this. I was really thinking about how do we approach this because in chapter one, you most of it is devoted to thanksgiving for the Thessalonian Christians, acknowledgement um, of their endurance as they have been persecuted. Remember, Paul got chased out of town himself. Yes. And um, and a lengthy piece about the judgment, judgment day. And then in 2 Thessalonians, Paul starts talking about the day of the Lord, the man of lawlessness, the one who estranged the man of lawlessness. I don't know of any other place in the Bible which quite gets as much imaginative treatment as the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. But um, I think the way to do this is for me to just walk you through a bit of an overview and then we'll read our way through it as opposed to vice versa. Okay, I think if we get in a helicopter and take a little bit of a larger view of what Paul is doing here, but before we sort of go through it word by word and verse by verse, it'll be better. Um, so I made up a few slides. Um, the red arrow, obviously, just to get us going, that's pointing to where Thessalonica is. We've talked about that a good bit over the last couple of months. And here's a slide that I found and used a lot in my 1 Corinthians class I just finished on Tuesdays. And it's another way of expressing the truth that we live uh, between the times that the kingdom of God has come already. Uh, here this slide calls it the age to come, synonyms. And we live, it has come already but not yet, and we live in the last days, the between the times. So the coming of Christ, the first coming obviously, was almost 2,000 years ago, right? And he has not yet returned. So we're somewhere in that orange box when the age to come or the kingdom of God is with us, and the present age, the age of sin and death and all destruction and all the rest of it is still with us as well. So where we are in that red box, it's impossible to say because Jesus says, I'm going to come back like a thief in the night. Um, Christians have made a uh, hobby out of uh, expect, you know, guessing when he's going to return or predicting he's about to return. And I've walked through that a number of times in my Sunday morning class. And every time it's been a big disappointment. Um, we don't listen well to Jesus. He says, I'll be like a thief in the night. All we can do is to be ready. We just need to be ready always. Why? Sure, of course we do. So we need to be ready. So so there are Christians in Thessalonica who believe that the day of the Lord is immediately upon them or has come or they have missed it. And that's one piece of what we're going to talk about today, perhaps. And the piece we're going to start with, though, is Paul's focus on the judgment. Now, this look over at the right-hand side of this slide. Notice that it says, Second Coming of Christ. Underneath it says, Day of the Lord. That's kind of a biblical way to talk about this, okay? And judgment. That is when judgment is rendered. Jesus returns. 
And that is kicks off this whole string of things. The judgment happens and the dead are resurrected and the new heavens and the new earth arrive, transformed so that we have a beautiful place again to live and to work and to be with God and Christ and one another and all of that, right? So he's going to talk to them about this about this judgment um, because he wants to talk to them about justice, about, about justice. Now, justice is something that we all want. We want to live in a just world. Okay, I was thinking here, I was working on this and I was thinking about that fellow up in Idaho, Koberger or something is his name. Mm -hmm. He's going to be going on a trial and stuff for the murder of those college students. And if he did it, what do we want? We want justice to be done. We want justice to be given to him. Now, we're, we're kind of broken humans. I mean, all of us are. Our, our faculties are certainly not gods, but, but, and we may not really always know what justice is, but we want justice to be done. We want we want things put right. We want people to get their due. When you read about people who commit evil acts and get away with it, what we want is for them to get what's due them, which is fine. That is what we should want. We should want to live in a just world. Right? right? Right. And and so there's no reason, there's every reason to embrace that. Today's Martin Luther King Day. What did he fight for? He fought for justice. He wanted to live in a just world. He wanted to live in a world in which, I mean, I grew up in the Deep South. I've talked about this before. I mean, looking back on it, I can't believe it actually existed. I can't believe that as a little kid, I went to the grocery store and there were one, two, three restrooms men white and colored, that there were two fat water fountains, white colored, that there were the, the, the trolley cars in Shreveport had a yellow line in the, in the back and all the black people had to sit behind the line. There were two worlds. I grew up in one world and in Shreveport and Minden and in other parts of Louisiana and, and black people grew up in a different world. They were separate. They weren't equal, they were separate. Carolyn Getridge and I have talked about this a lot. We we both grew up kind of in the same era, and she lived she lived in her world. I lived in my world. She lived in a good in a good world. She would tell you, but it's still a separate world. And there were many, 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 many injustices. And so King was fighting for justice to be done, as it is written in the prophets, to let justice roll down like a like a stream, like a river, like a water flowing downhill, just want justice to just pour out. Just think of what our many Christians' favorite life verse is, you know, remember what the Lord requires of you, Micah 6, 8. Remember what the Lord requires of you, to love mercy, to do justice. That's what it actually is, to do justice and to walk humbly with your God. So doing justice is... is it's it's a godly thing, and there is much wrong in this world that that should be judged, and 
vengeance doesn't really have any place in that. We, have, we can have in our hearts a desire for vengeance. But it's really about justice. It's really about justice. And, and we'll talk about that in, a, in, in just a little bit. So there are a couple of words I wanted to just go over with you. These um, parousia, okay? That is the word. It's, it comes from the Greek. It means second. This is Jesus' second coming. It means appearance. Like, not like how you look, but like somebody appears. Well, that's going to be Jesus. When he comes back, he's going to be back on the scene again. So you, you see it a lot. I read a lot of commentaries. It's in there a lot. And it's just a word to remind yourself about. So when you run across it, you realize, oh, well, we're talking about Jesus' Jesus's second coming. Another word is apocalypse. We're going to come across it today in the Greek. Now, it won't say apocalypse in your Bible. What it's going to say is reveal. And reveal is basically apocalypsis. And so... We're gonna the, the the judgment and the coming of Jesus reveals to the whole world the truth of what the truth of the gospel that Paul's been preaching. So apocalypse basically mean, means a revealing. It means a curtain is opened, and now you can see everything. And I think I have one more word here. Antichrist. Okay, antichrist. There are five occurrences in the New Testament of the word Antichrist. And they are all in 1 John and 2 John. They're not anywhere else. It's not used in Revelation. It's not used here in um, 2 Thessalonians. And scholars debate whether we should ever think of it as a capital A, as in the Antichrist, like in the Left Behind series. There's this guy who, I don't know what, he drives Porsches, wears Gucci suits, gets all this power at the United Nations and all this stuff, and he is like the Antichrist. You know, I don't think that's too helpful. I think John uses Antichrist as a way of talking about those who oppose Jesus. And... I'm going to take that word. Oh, Scott. How about, oh, hang on one second. What am I doing here? I don't even know what I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> I've forgotten all my keyboard shortcuts. That's the problem. So, um, the, the problem is people have made such a big deal out of the fact that they believe they can find somewhere in the New Testament a reference to this Antichrist. And I'm not sure that's at all true. And then what has happened for 2,000 years is that there have been countless Antichrists. Countless Antichrists. Did you know that for a lot of Americans, King George III at the time of the Revolution was seen as the Antichrist? Nope, did not know that. Did not know that, huh? Lots and lots of them. And so it just kind of, I think, warns us about, about being too particular about that. It's kind of the same thing as being convinced that we can figure out when Jesus is going to come back. Um, 
I think there are plenty of people, there are millions and billions of people on the planet who oppose Jesus, and we don't really have to look for one singular person. In Paul's time, and even before Paul's time, there were certain figures who particularly posed big problems for the Jews first and then for the Christians. Um, and if there were ever anybody who truly was worthy of the title, the Antichrist, it would be some of those type people. Um, so, so we're going to try to bring a perspective here of hearing Paul not only talk about his day, but looking forward to a day down the road. So, okay, let's see what else that I have here. We won't mess with Caligula. We'll just leave him there. That's a teaser. Okay. Please. <laughs> <laughs> so, any thoughts about anything I just said? Questions? Hello, everybody. I see more people are signing in. That's great. So, I had a question. Sure, Patty. That word perusa, or however you say it? Perusia. Perusia. That only means second coming. Was there a word in particular for Jesus' first coming? It really just means appearance. Okay. So, so could you could take either? it to speak of his first coming. Okay. Or the king showing up or something like that. But it, it, it it's really used in the New Testament and then used by people writing about Jesus to speak of his second coming, his, his new appearance. Yeah. Um. Anything else over there, Patty? Nope. Anything from anybody else? I know you got to type it in, and that that's not the best, but you know, nope. not much we can do about that. Okay. A lot of wonderful people online with us. We do have a lot of. Are we? Danny, there's so many wonderful people that we're blessed to know. It's at St. Andrew and elsewhere through our Bible studies and everything. It's just, it's just great. I was reading. Just an aside before we we open up our Bibles. Um, in Saturday's Wall Street Journal, there was a lengthy article about the Harvard Adult Development Study that I've talked about in my Sunday class before. It's a study of, of hundreds of adults over the course of their lives, and it started like 85 years ago. And teams at Harvard have been tracking these people that long, and then their children, and then their children's children. And and it's one of those pieces of research that is very difficult and takes a huge commitment because it is over such a long period. It's what's called longitudinal social research. Difficult to do, expensive to do. And um, they said, you know, they look at people who are 80 or something. They say, you know, if you ask yourself, well, what differentiates between those who are enjoying life and reasonably good health from those who aren't? They said, it's not really your diet. It's not it's not really the amount of exercise that you got. It's not really um, how much money you have. It is about relationships, about relationships. And those, they said, those who are in, have, have a good relationship life at 50 are much more likely to have a good life at 80. And sharing a lot of time with your spouse is good 
on almost all indicators of human happiness for people who are in their in in their 70s or 80s now they do acknowledge that if you don't like your spouse that <laughs> might not be the case but relationships 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 and then they went into this discussion sort of evolutionary biology about why that is you know and it does this and this and we were once tribal living in caves and yada 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 and i said ah 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 you guys don't get it we are inherently relational it is the most important thing about us why because god is inherently relational Three in one, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Son. God is love, John writes three times in 1 John. That's the reason. That's the clue to understanding why relationships matter so much. Why people will turn their dogs basically into humans. They treat them basically like they're human like they're their children. Why do they do that? Because they have such a, such a hunger, such a hunger for genuine relationships. And if, if it's not going to be lived out in relationship with a the human, they'll do it with, uh, you know, a dachshund. <laughs> so, okay, enough of that. So let's, let's turn on our Bibles, and we're going to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. See, this letter is so short, I feel free to talk about all kinds of stuff, because uh, we'll be done with this letter in a snap. In but a moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people out there won't get that. What's that from, Patty? That is from the movie Love Actually. Which we can't recommend anybody, really, unless it's not something to watch with your eight-year-old. No, it's not. But it's a, a movie that I... But it is one of our enjoy. favorites. Yes. One of our favorites. Okay, so... Verse 5, so he's been talking about how thankful he is for the Thessalonians, that they are persevered, persevered, and they have endured. That's, that's, that's the key word. He isn't, he isn't really praising them because they suffered. I mean, they have suffered for this, but what he's praising them for is their endurance. Endurance, dude. That's what Paul's had to do. He's... He's had to endure so much himself. You know how deeply he must be moved by other Christians who endure. They just put their head down, they put their heart forward, and they go on. And so he says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. They have endured, they have persevered through their suffering, and they will be counted worthy. Um, I, I know sometimes that throws people, I've taught a long time, and I know it throws people to speak of being worthy. It doesn't, it doesn't negate God's grace. It is just, it's just saying that we need to lead lives that are honorable and virtuous and reflective of God and worthy. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1.
Ah, I didn't even do what I said I was going to do. Ephesians. Come on, iPad. Do what I tell you. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Um, this past, yesterday, I was the liturgist at 930, and I wrote a pastoral prayer. And I used some of this paragraph in that pastoral prayer. Because I think it's just, it's just so, it's just so beautiful. And here's what Paul writes. He says in Ephesians 4, chapter 1. Ephesians 4, chapter 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. God's grace has been poured out on you. He has called you to be one of his disciples. Live a life worthy of that calling. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's just, just marvelous. Be worthy of the calling to which you were called. And for Paul, that describes the Thessalonians. They have shown it. It's not just words. They've shown it by their perseverance through this time of persecution and probably shunning and maybe maybe violence. We don't, as I said last week, we don't really know all of the circumstances, do we? But go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, actually verse 6. Let's just pick up in verse 6. I'll give you a second to get there. I'll finish my coffee, maybe. Ooh. Yeah, I like that coffee straight. <laughs> Hot, black, no sugar, none of that stuff for me. Okay, so verse 6 of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. God is just. Of course God is just. Of course God is just. It's it's by it's from God that we understand what justice is. God is the definition of justice. God knows what's right and what's wrong. And if we lose the ability to discern one from another in any way, we're just getting further and further away from God. Not that we will we can't know right from wrong in the way that God knows right from wrong, but we could do better. Maybe I'll, we'll get into that today if I decide to rant about something. Verse 6, God is just, and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Everyone is going to get their due. Those who have chosen for God and are being persecuted for it and those who have chosen against God and are persecuting the people who have chosen for God. People will get their due. Now, is this going to happen 
in the next week or the next month. That's the tricky part, you see. We are, we are, we are fragile and poor dispensers of judge, justice. But not God. And Paul, Paul's not a fool. He knows that in this life, there are plenty of people who commit evil acts and get away with it. Are never, don't ever have to stand to account for it. Look at the world he lives in. The Roman Empire, the power of the Roman Empire, how much of it was devoted to something as looking at it, looking back as crazy and disgusting as the gladiatorial contests in the arenas. Life was so cheap. Who made life cheap? Not God. So he says, yeah, he'll pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed. That's the apocalypse. That's the, in the Greek, it's the word apocalypse, basically. That's the root word, is revealed. It's just a verb form of it. It is revealed. The curtain is opened. Everybody's now going to see. This is going to happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. This is a very Jewish way of understanding that the day of the Lord in full manifestation, full glory, nobody could possibly miss it, miss it, is going to arrive. And God is going to come with his angels. And God's going to come with blazing fire because fire purifies and burns away the chaff. And that is all, in the New Testament, that is all transferred from the Old Testament, from the, well, I shouldn't use the really word transfer. The focus becomes not, not simply God, but Jesus. Jesus is that judge. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And I think in here, maybe, we talked about that parable about the wheat and the and the weeds when Jesus says, look, it's not your job, disciples, to go around and think you you know how to identify everyone who's good wheat from everyone who's a weed. <laughs> and just leave that for Jesus, the parable says. We'll take care of that at the end. And that's a really good lesson for us. There are way too many Christians ready to think they can figure that all out. They know exactly who the true Christians are and exactly who the true Christians aren't and all the rest of it. Best leave it to Jesus. Isn't it a wonderful thing to stop and consider? Many of you have come to church and worshiped Jesus and talked about Jesus through many Christmases and Easter's and all the rest of it. It's Jesus who is the judge. You're leaving it to Jesus. Jesus will make those judgments. Jesus is just.
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven when blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now that word punish, um, uh, in the Common English Bible, I think it says something like he will give justice because the root word there in the Greek is kind of a justice word. So, but regardless, judgment is about giving people their due, making sure that everybody gets justice. You know, I think Mr. Koberger up in Idaho is going to get justice, and it's it's not going to be it's not going to be a good thing for him, at least not in the short term. He will. Jesus, verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, that's really kind of the same group. I don't think most, well, most scholars, I won't say most. I'm with those scholars who don't think that Paul really means two completely separate groups. It's just one builds on the other. They don't, know, they don't know God. They don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But the point it drives home is that it is kind of a... In the end, and we're, of course, we're, what are we talking about? We're talking about... Let me go back. We're talking about, you know, tomorrow or next week? No, not unless Jesus comes back. We're talking about all the way here at the end of the orange box. Jesus' the second coming. That's when Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff, the wheat from the weeds. And, and it's just like at the end of Revelation. You know, the names are first read out of the book of merit about what everybody has done, but then there is the book of life. And those whose names are read out of the book of life go on to eternity with God. And those whose names are not read out of the book of life, well, they don't go on with God. Verse 9. These are talking about the people who don't know God, don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. That's interesting. And shut out from the presence of the Lord. Because that's the definition, really. If you want to know what heaven is, that's, that's about as good a definition as I could come up with. The presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. What does that mean? I, I, think, it, I think destruction means destruction. And it's destruction from which there is no coming back. And those who, in the end, in the end, after everyone is resurrected, those who choose against God, it will just be their end. Just their end. That's a destruction that lasts forever. They will they will get they will get their due. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out, shut away from the presence of the Lord. From Jesus' presence. Paul writes when he thinks he's about to possibly be executed, 
And he's ready to go because he's ready to, quote, be with Christ. And Paul is describing here people who choose not to be with Christ and who are shut out from the Lord's presence. And what does it mean? If, if God is the giver and sustainer of life, what does it mean to be shut out from that? If we are made in God's image, and in the end we shake our fists at God and are shut out from God's presence, what, what does that mean for the image of God in us? To, I would submit that there isn't any. You know, N.T. Wright wonders if, if what happens at that time is those people would just become sort of mindless brutes where the image of God has gone entirely, but they're still living. I don't, I don't think so. I, I think I'm with others who think that no, no, they just... Everlasting destruction means destruction from which there is no coming back and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, of Jesus' might, because who's the Lord here that we're talking about in the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It is Jesus. Because look up in verse 7. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord, from Jesus, and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And then he says to them, this includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. In, in, they have made... They have made the right choice. They have made the choice for God, not against God. And one of the things that keeps cropping up in my classes is, well, you know, can't we just wait a while? Well, the biblical, the New Testament view is that you are in the darkness until you step into the light. You're in the darkness until you step into the light. There's no twilight there. There's no fence sitting on this. You're in the darkness. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to stay in the darkness, or are you going to come into the light? That's also First Peter, um, chapter two. Are you going to come into the light? God's God has called you out of the darkness and into His light, so that we could proclaim who God is. Well, you know. But I'm certainly, I certainly believe there will be those who shake their fist at God all the way, out of pride and everything else. This is C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, the way it opens, where the, these, these, the sort of people you might meet in life somewhere are just always unhappy, never smile, looking down on everybody else because they think they're better and know oh, who wants to be with them and those little goody two-shoes and all that kind of stuff. And so in the opening of The Great Divorce, the, you come to realize they are shut out from the Lord's presence and the, the gates of hell are locked from the inside because that's what they want. It's what they want. And it's a very colorful way to talk about the fact that it isn't, it isn't really God. It, it isn't God who puts them there. 
they put themselves there. They exclude themselves from God's presence. And could there be anything sadder? Scott? Yes. Um, Diana Reeves put for Carl that um, he remembers, Robert used to say, that he defined hell as permanent separation from God. And I do remember Robert... See, and that's what that's what these verses are about, right? Yeah. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. Yeah, that's that's what that's what hell is, and and if you, um, that's how it's that's how it is at the end of the book of Revelation. Then those whose names are not found in the book of life, they don't go on with to spend eternity with God. They are shut out of it. And the question then is, well, what happens to them? And, you know, we could argue, we could talk about that stuff a lot, but it's all I know is it's not the group I want to be part of. I don't want anybody to be part of it. I don't want the people I love and care for to be on. I don't want everybody who's made in the image of God should recognize and embrace the God in whose image they are made. And, um, but just... But just, just so many people just won't, they just can't bring themselves to do it. Or they, I think we, we, the larger church, I think has made this difficult for some. There are a lot of people who've been damaged by church. There's a lot of terrible stuff that comes out of some churches. Um, and That's a sad thing. And so it makes me always very focused on God's grace and Jesus' love about how all this, is, all this is handled by Jesus. What I'm just grateful for is that it is Jesus who gets to make all of those judgments yes. and it never falls on me or Patty or any of us. And we just need to guard ourselves. Um, some Christians, I think, kind of view their job as being um, the gatekeepers Okay, keeping out the wrong sort of folks from the church, that is not our job. We are not gatekeepers. We're not security. <laughs> who are we? We're ushers. We're welcomers. We're greeters. We're the ones who greet people at the door and up, bring them in, and, and we leave the rest of it to God. So, anyway. And in those, and I know we've discussed this before in other Bible studies, in the cases where somebody comes in and really is a destroyer, the Bible gives us some help in how to deal with that too. Sure. Because and you can't you can't keep somebody in your church, even though we're not the gatekeepers, you can't keep somebody in there who is trying to destroy it. No, because then they it's it it's they haven't come in there with good with intention. A, with good intentions. Yeah. Way to good good way to put it, Sad uh, Patty. It's it's just sort of part and parcel of being a broken, of being a broken world. Well, I can tell you, in the online world, man, there are a lot of people who are so focused on drawing lines around little tiny pieces of theology. Oh my goodness! And I just don't think that's who we're called to be. We're called to be people of grace, reflecting the grace that God has poured out on all of us. So I have a very, as you know. If you've been in my classes any time at all, I have a very big, expansive view of God's grace. 
because I think God is big and expansive and his love is big and expansive and there we go. So, up to verse 11 now. He says in verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. See? May make you worthy of his calling. See, it's such a great, it's just, it's just this great thing that Paul does because sometimes he will say to people, well, be worthy of the calling right and anybody who hears those words are going to say well you know i have i guess i have something i better i i, I better make some choices that will will contribute to my being worthiness being worthy of this calling that god has given me to come to this fellowship called the body of christ but then he says on the other hand god may make you worthy of his calling so it's sort of a both and thing. I saw that one of the books being published by Invite Resources, the title of it is Both And. I have great hopes, I don't know who wrote it, I have great hopes for it because that's one of the real fundamental theological perspectives to bring to your life is both and, both and. There are a lot of things that you in the Christian life and doctrine that you, you, you don't have to choose between. It's both and both end. You are to work out your calling, work out your salvation, Paul writes to the Ephesians, and at the same time, <laughs> we are all saved by grace so that no one can boast in the same letter, Ephesians. And it isn't that Paul is being contradictory, he just recognizes this both and nature of of God's creation and God's love. So he says to them, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, not yours, his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We are never in this alone. God, God's power, God is at work in us and through us, and God's power is devoted to helping us bring to fruition, bring to completion, to live out our desire for goodness and a life of faith. That means... This is the crucial part of the Christian story is that the Holy Spirit, who is the right, the third person of the Trinity, not a what, but a who, um, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, God present, that the Spirit of God dwells in each of us as Christians, not in the world at large, only, the, only to those who have put their faith in Jesus. And, and the Holy Spirit works to bring to fruition our desire for goodness and for faith, our desire to be kinder, our desire to be more patient, right? Now, there are a lot of things in life that probably doesn't extend to. Our desire for the latest model car 
or our desire for a lot of the material things that are shoved in front of our face all the time. I don't think Paul would say that's that that's what the Holy Spirit dwells in you to help you accomplish. The Holy Spirit is to help you bear the fruit of the Spirit, the kindness and patience and compassion and gentleness and humility in, in Galatians 5. So that by God's power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. It's easy. What, let me tell you, I've been on staff at St. Andrew for 20 years. It's very easy for staff at a church to end up feeling like it's too much up to them. I just think it's part of our culture. If you look at, you know, businesses and nonprofits, it's it's easy for staff members to think it's it's just kind of all on me, you know. I, I not recognizing that no, that's not true. God's power is at work. God's power is at work, and and. It isn't all just on us, as we're inclined to say. God's power is at work. All the, the Holy Spirit, as well as our fellow Christian brothers and sisters who are all working alongside us to, to um, make disciples and to be good witnesses and so forth, which really extends beyond staff to, to church members. Now, I, I find that St. Andrew church members are really good about reminding me that, you know, God has um, that I can rely on God's power. In fact, I've preached a lot of sermons over the course of the last, you know, 15 years. And can't tell you the number of occasions when I would pray to God to help me with the sermon and I when I read when I finished I realized that God really did that it wasn't it really wasn't me it was I, I knew God had helped me through that sermon and had had made it a better sermon than I thought I was going to preach now did that mean I wouldn't prepare no of course not that's not how it works but I did do the preparation and then the power of God was with me in bringing it to, you know, to full flower or whatever. So, verse 12, Paul writes, We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Right? These Thess Thessalonians, we want Jesus to be glorified through them, glorified out through their endurance, through their faithfulness, through their perseverance, through their love for one another. All of that glorifies Jesus because all of, the, because all of that is a good witness to Jesus. Remember, glory is this social idea. Glory is the idea. Glorifying Jesus is enabling others to see the truth about Jesus. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul writes about grace a lot, as well he should, because it, it undergirds, grace undergirds everything. So, anything, Patty? No. So let's go on to chapter two then. Well, okay, so here we are. We are coming to this concern about the day of the Lord. Again, kind of like in 1 Thessalonians 4. Did we miss it? Are we going to miss it? Is grandma going to be left out? And what the heck is going on? Times are difficult for us Christians. On on down the line. You know, um, these Thessalonian Christians, of course, are aware of a lot of things that we're not aware of because we have to reach back through 2,000 years of history to be aware of it. But they're aware of it. They know what's going on. So, let me give you an example. Not that, not that, not that. There. Okay, so Caligula, a lot of people have heard of Caligula. He was a pretty bad, crazy dude. Just pretty well, just pretty well insane. And there are a lot of stories about him and a lot of legends about him. But even though there was at the time a growing cult to worship the emperor as like semi-divine, that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to go all the way, baby, all the way to being seen as, I don't know, what, equivalent of Zeus or something. So much so, and that one of the things that projects he wanted to undertake in the late 30s AD was to destroy the temple in Jerusalem and build a new temple there and put in it a statue of himself. Much as Antiochus Epiphanes did in about 167 BC. Okay? Well, you can imagine how that would have been received by the Jews. Fortunately, blessedly, maybe God's hand was at work here, he was assassinated, Caligula was, in like 41. So that particular little project to destroy the Jewish temple and erect a new temple with a statue of himself was not accomplished. But if it had been, maybe the great Jewish wars would have happened in 40 AD instead of the late 60s AD. But all of that kind of thing is the world in which the Thessalonians are living. And they're aware of it. And sure, news would travel in their world, not with the same speed or completeness that it would travel in our world. But yeah, it did. <coughs> and they are just wondering about like, when is this day of the Lord thing going to happen? And of course, like I said, that became the way of Christians ever since. Ever since predicting when it's going to be, concerned about when it's going to be, thinking they could figure it out. So, chapter 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, okay, because he is going to gather together, 
Remember, we're that welcoming party in 1 Thessalonians 4. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. So, perhaps he's getting some reports that people are teaching and telling things and doing it in the night. I heard Paul say this, I heard Paul say that, and people are getting upset by it, and they're getting worried about it, and they're being concerned about it, and he says whether by a prophecy, that would be a public, like in a little worship group in a house church, um, word spoken, or by word of mouth, or by letter, regardless of all that teaching, allegedly by Paul, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So, obviously, the issue is pretty clear. There are those sort of spreading the idea that the day of the Lord has already come. That would be kind of a letdown for a lot of people. If I that think was it true. would be. <laughs> I right? think it would be. Yeah. Where was it? How did I miss it? Right. You know? So he then says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Okay, okay, the man of lawlessness or the man of destruction. Um, hmm. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay. You can see in the, the way Paul writes this, that it's very possible N.T. Wright is correct. He, he thinks that probably what's going on here is that... Um, he has in mind um, Caligula, because the way you know, if you if you if you look at prophets in the Bible, or maybe prophets in general, I mean, they look to the future, and the further ahead they look through their telescope, it gets actually less and less clear. And so Paul is looking way out because he knows that Jesus hasn't come back yet. Um, it's now, how long? 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, but there have been things happening right there in the near term that perhaps are an indicator that Jesus is about to come. And one of those might be well, for Paul, perhaps Caligula in erecting this temple and putting a god there. People reading this would probably have some idea if that's true, that that's what Paul has in mind. People would um, be familiar with the story of Caligula because he was only assassinated like less than 
10 years earlier. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's less than 10 years earlier. And um, it was, he was a pretty, Caligula was a pretty infamous guy. He was, he, he, he was a, he was, he was crazy and terrible. And um, the Roman Empire was good to be rid of him. And so what Paul is going to talk to them about is that is this are really two figures. One is this man of lawlessness and one is this we're going to meet one he's going to refer to as the restrainer. And though some folks are convinced that they know they write books and they're convinced they know exactly what all of this means, I don't think we do. I think it's I would love to sit down and have have Paul walk me through it and tell me what he what he means, especially in the light of the fact that we're sitting here two thousand years later and Jesus still has to come back. But the fact that he talks about people who will oppose and will exalt themselves over everything that's called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, that kind of stuff we have a lot of familiarity with, right? There have been people like that all along. Uh, let's take let's take the popular 20th century example. Um, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler took the, some of those features and structures of the Lutheran Church and reworked them. He Nazified them. There are photographs of altars that where the cross would be on an altar cloth hanging over the altar. Instead, there's a swastika there. Yep. So it's... I guess what I resist is the idea that we're waiting for a day when all of a sudden people will be deceived and will worship the wrong things and chase the wrong people. When I think that's the history of the last two thousand years, I could bring you, I could offer you countless examples uh, of people who are, the nine hundred people who followed Jim Jones down to Guyana, right? Mm -hmm. Did they think they were following? Did they think they were going to go to their death? No. Waco, gonna? Did they think they were going to go to their death? No. There's countless, very tragic, very sad examples, and even today, oh man. There is so much delusion, that's the word I want to use, delusion out there about who we are and the world we live in. I don't know that we'd have to wait for more <laughs> of it. So then he goes on anyway in verse 5. He says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. And I guess he's speaking of Jesus there. You know, Paul uses a lot of pronouns and scholars fight over who we sh who's, who is this even in reference to. But it seems to me that um, 
Jesus will be revealed how, when, at the proper time. At the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. No kidding. Was that news in 50 AD? Is it news today? No. It's... We today, I was just, have lost... We have lost sight of, in our society, in our culture, so many people have lost sight. Or the, I guess the ability to tell right from wrong. When you tell me that there are drag queens going to kids' libraries for drag queen story hours, I don't even know what to say to that. How could anybody possibly possibly see that as good for a child what kind of what kind of lenses are are we wearing what kind of what kind of delusions are we living under that we could possibly think that is a right thing i patty pointed a story out to me yesterday that i had heard about it was this guy at a school somewhere and he he identifies as a woman, and so he's going to keep teaching, but he just doesn't leave it in that. Instead, he wears these giant, giant balloon boobs. Yeah, giant. Giant yes, balloon boobs. Yes. I don't know, giant balloon boobs. And the school feels like, I mean, I'm. we're talking about, we're talking about circus. And the school feels like they can't do anything about it. Because he has a right to dress as a but because he has a right to dress as woman. fine, but they feel like they can't do anything about it, which to me is just what do you mean you can't? Can't you tell that's not going to be good for the students in the school? Uh, you know, are we that deluded now or that powerless? So when Paul writes that the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, I don't think I have to be mysterious about this. This isn't. This isn't like something that's waiting someday when it will be true. It's true now, has been true, will be true until Jesus comes back. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. That's the restrainer. Okay, in this portion of the letter, and who does Paul mean? Does he mean himself? Does he mean the Holy Spirit? Why does he write it in this way? Wow. Wow. Questions. I wish we had we had answers to. Um, who who is this restrainer? I understand what the restraining is about. The restraining is, is about trying to hold back, you know, this this lawlessness, this craziness, this this loss of morality and virtue. That part I get. But he but Paul personalizes it. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. So some some commentators think it's Paul's talking about talking about himself. Maybe so. I'm not sure. And then he writes in verse 8, And then the lawless 
lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Okay, so that part is a little easier for me because this is pretty standard Jewish stuff from the time. You know, the Jews had been through a lot. They had been through slavery in Egypt. They had been through the destruction of the ten tribes by the Assyrians. They had been through the destruction of, of Jerusalem by, by the Babylonians. They were living under the oppression of the Romans. So, so they had a lot of language and a lot of words about, okay, things are bad, but they're not going to stay bad because God is basically gonna, going to rescue us. And, um, and the rescuer in this case is gonna be, is gonna be whom? Jesus. It's gonna be Jesus. And then the lawless, the lawless one will be revealed. Maybe all Paul is saying, this, this lawlessness, this worldly, what? Worldly delusion, um, if, if we brought it to the year 2023, he could be talking about the loss of a sense of evil in the world or the loss of a sense of sin in the world, which is all true and underlies a lot of our, I think, our difficulties um, in terms of making, making better decisions. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow because, of course, God wins. Of course, Jesus wins with the breath of his mouth and destroyed by the splendor of his coming. So who is really... For Paul... Who is really behind a lot of this kind of work against God in this world? Do you mean Rome or do you mean like the devil? I'm not sure. I mean like the devil. Okay. You see, even in Revelation, even though Revelation is focused on Rome, in the immediate, because that's, that's the one you see, it's really about the powers behind. So look at verse 9. And we're going to end here. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. For Paul, there is a real struggle that goes on in this world between those who strive to do good and those who strive to destroy that good, to do evil. And for Paul, Satan is real. I don't think he means it any other way. For Paul, Satan is real and works against God's purposes. And so when we come together next week, we're going to, I told you these two weeks are kind of a hoot. We're going to pick it up there. We're going to um, look at a, uh, a passage or two, perhaps from 2 Corinthians and... Um, try to make all of this mean something to us in 2023 because I think it does I really do I think it does even though it and it's not like waiting it's not like a movie script we don't we're not just waiting for somebody to show up at the UN which is what happens in the left line books yes <laughs> it's talking about you know what what we're letting happen in the world around us yes and we may think we're not letting it happen but 
somehow it's happening. Dry Queen Story, Dry Queen Story Hours is my perfect example. Um, I read something else yesterday that I thought was very interesting, and because it reminds me again of Paul, where in that one um, place where Paul says, you know, love whatever is beautiful, whatever is uh, lovely, whatever is excellent, and somebody worded it yesterday, and I had never heard it worded like this before, and this is especially in our country. I mean, it's the world, but especially in our country, that there are people who are trying to remove the excellence. And I think in a lot of ways that could be true. I really do. Yeah, we've turned yeah. on the beauty as well. And truth. Yes. Truth is said. It's all just whatever you yeah. want to make it out to be. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, we've taken, it's from Philippians 4, we've taken that piece out and we're chopping away at it all. And the ironic thing is that in Philippians 4, when Paul writes that list, that isn't really even a Christian list. That That's yeah. from the Greeks. Yes. Th those yes. are the virtues like we studied mm -hmm. yes. on Sunday right. in right. my Sunday class. Those right. are Aristotle's right. virtues, right? Who could who could see the truth of, of how we're made, mm -hmm. even if he didn't know the God who made us. So anyway, okay, very good. Well, wow, that's all I knew Second, second Thessalonians <laughs> would be a trip. <laughs> the man of lawlessness. Wow. I don't know. I don't know. I still have yeah. a hard time figuring that that is Caligula because Caligula to me, he's already been dead for 10 years. Yeah. And he changes he changes the verb tenses as Paul is talking. He's talking about he will do this. He will do this. And it's like, but he's already been dead for 10 years. Is he going to come back and do this? I don't know. Anyway, that's just me. That's just me, folks. You know I'm probably I know. wrong. Those are, those are good questions, and I always say pay attention to verb tenses. Yes. You know, there were legends about, you know, the next crazy one is Nero yes. about 20 years later, and there were legends about Nero coming so back. So maybe it is, maybe it's Nero versus, who knows? Anyway. Who knows? Who knows? Someday you'll have that on an index I'm going to sit down and chat with Paul about <laughs> okay. this and say, what in the world were you talking about here? And it might be somebody completely different. But the, the thing is, the, the early Christians said, here, this letter is important. Yep. So don't skip it. That's right. Right? That's right. You may, you may be befuddled, but don't skip it. <laughs> don't skip it. Okay. <laughs> um, so glad you were here with us today on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That was great. Um, didn't know if we'd have a lot of people or not, but there was a pretty good size group. Good. Yeah. I was going to run out and get the mail now, but of course there is no mail. There is it's no, no mail. mail. Exactly. <laughs> so let's just close in prayer today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we get together on Mondays. We thank you, God, for opening your word to us and helping with Scott's help and your help, Lord, helping us to understand all of this better. We pray, God, that you would watch over each of us, God, as we continue on our way today. We pray, God, you'd keep us healthy and safe, and we pray, God, for our families as well. Lord, bring us back together next Monday, and Lord, for those that would love to have another Bible study, bring them back to tomorrow, 12 o'clock, for our first Samuel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. And for those of you who didn't make it to first Samuel last week, we basically got into like two sentences yeah yeah so you wouldn't that's right I really, was, I really did a great introduction though you, you he did a yes. great introduction truly he did but um yeah i'm just saying you will not have missed much if you feel like and we had 79 people in person yeah in person last week that is crazy we filled up all of 
uh, Piero. We did. It's a great and group. So um, if you come tomorrow, please get there a little early if you want to sit like in a favorite seat or something. Because yeah. anyway, bye, everybody. See bye. you tomorrow. Bye. Adios.